bum bum bottom 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 bum b
Yeah. Like a cartoon. It was, it was, there are so many, like, and of course, like, in the moment, I was like, well, I have to be the calm one. I have to be the strong one. I'll call USAA, you know, like I, I'll, you know, do that end while you take care of the outside of the car and do all of that stuff. And, and so I'm like, I just have to be cool. And, and I'm like, Brad, we're fine. You know, there's so many, you know, it's nobody's fault. Everybody gets in these accidents. And then that night, Brad is selling logs and my eyes are like wide open. And I'm thinking, man, if... We weren't next to an exit. We could have slammed into a wall. We could have slammed into a guardrail. Uh, if there had been any cars around us. If there us. had been any cars around us, we could have taken a whole family with a baby in a car seat with us. It was truly scary. I, I, I don't think I've ever experienced that moment where your life flashes before your eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I spun the car and we were going in reverse skidding towards the guardrail and I looked backwards and I saw the guardrail coming at us, I had that moment of, oh no, I'm about to die. I've killed Lisa. We <laughs> we essentially did like the Looney Tunes fall out of a building and land on a truck carrying a load of feather beds. Yeah. Like that's essentially what we did because we passed a thousand things as we're spinning past a thousand things that we could have hit really hard. But <laughs> instead we went, we spun off into an exit and then landed all things considered pretty gently parallel to the guardrail so that we did end up hitting the guardrails. We've got a huge, we slid all the way down. We, broke both the back bumper, the front bumper, and both doors. And the insurance company is contemplating, we haven't heard officially yet, uh, totaling the car. And uh, yeah, we're renting right now. Yeah, I'm driving a rental. And guess what? Driving a rental, pretty sweet. (laughs) They've done a lot of cool things to cars since 2007. Anyway, all things considered, I really should shut up about my love tank being at seven because of <laughs> last night's delay on this podcast recording. But and I going, should shoot that back up to 10 because I'm full of life. But a lot of times going through a crisis is something that bonds a relationship together. So maybe we're stronger for it. Who well, knows? and you know, to that point, looking at Scott and Jean, going from the events of the Dark Phoenix saga to the weirdness of X Factor and into this week's episode you know they're they're um they're firing on all cylinders in episode 3 of the comic book couples counseling podcast and thank god cuz i needed them too yeah absolutely let's put staring into the gaping maw of death behind us <laughs> and let's focus on the future our little podcast is finding homes everywhere we're now on spotify yes we're now on itunes yes and some really sweet people have already started filling our love tank by giving us five stars on iTunes and leaving a review. They have. uh, Some strangers. I've never heard of these people. (laughs) Um, But this first one comes from A Cool Hand Fluke. That's an interesting... Who could that be? That couldn't possibly be Aaron, the cool guy who designed our logo and (laughs) our stamp that goes on all of our images for each episode. It couldn't possibly be that guy who's on Twitter as at a cool hand fluke, and also does the Rest in Pictures podcast, 
with Brad Gullickson? No, I don't think that's him. I oh. think this is another a cool hand fluke. I'm mistaken. There must be multiples. Uh, he says, uh, relationship goals. That's the title. Oh. Five stars. If you are used to frequenting the comic shop every Wednesday, this is your podcast. Instead of a run-of-the-mill critique on this week's graphic novel offerings, why not dig a bit deeper into your favorite characters' love lives? Get your relationship advice from an adorable couple in the nerdiest way possible. That is so sweet. We should have that guy not only design our logos, but write our copy. That's a fact. <laughs> uh, and then another stranger, at WB Das. WB Das? That couldn't possibly be Billy Das from the In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast. I don't the think so. Indie Dork. No. At WB Das on Twitter. No, don't think it's him. Oh. His title is Hilarious Look at Comic Book Couples, Five Stars. Brad and Lisa are super knowledgeable about comics, and the premise is a hoot. Check it out. And maybe learn something about your own relationship. Ooh, that's oh. true. All right, so there you go. Our t first two reviews on iTunes. If you want uh, us to promote anything that you're doing, uh, leave a review on iTunes. Five stars only, please. I won't read your one-star negative Nelly attitude critique. Don't want to hear it. Uh, and we will read your five-star reviews on the next episode. Absolutely. And that's also a great place for you guys to suggest what comic book couples you'd love to hear about on this podcast because we're always open to suggestions. Okay. So this week, we are diving back into the lives of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. We're jumping ahead to 1994 uh, with the comic book miniseries, The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, written by Scott Lobdell and illustrated by Gene Ha. Uh, it's only four issues, so it's a quick read. You can find it in the collection X-Men, Cyclops, and Phoenix, Past and Future, which was recently published as a trade paperback for $29.99. Um, yeah, the 90s. This was an insane decade for comic book readers. This is where I jumped on board. Uh, the speculator market was firing full steam ahead. Polybags, chromium covers, pogs, all kinds of stunts were designed to rob kids like me from their pocket money. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an era of comics that uh, takes a lot of heat. You know, Rob Liefeld and his pouches. Um... Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and those image guys with their terrible scripts but amazing art. Uh, look, I'm not here to hate on the 90s. I'm a kid of the 90s. I have a lot of fondness for the 90s. Digging into this trade paperback this week, I also jumped and uh, reread some uh, X-Men comics from the Executioner's Song series and Extinction Agenda. And yeah, some of it's pretty darn silly, but I love it so. And I don't think it's as bad as some people say. When I flipped open this book and I read like the very first page, I was just like, "What? Well, where are all my friends? Where are the rest of the X-Men? I felt tricked. And, um, and I was like, and who is Rachel? Well, okay. All right. Well, we got to, I think maybe before we talk about this miniseries, we need to go over what has happened to Scott and Jean since 1986 with the X-Factor run that we covered in the last episode? Yeah, they're, to me, like you can't be just dropped into the middle of this comic because you straight up, there are so many characters that are introduced that are critical that you're like, where did these people come from? 
Yeah. So, okay. Um, last time we saw Scott and Jean, uh, they were members of X Factor. Right. They were masquerading as uh, anti-mutant extremists who used that cover to weed their way into tight scenarios and recruit mutants who were being hunted by humanity. Right, because they had lost touch with Professor Xavier, so they didn't have... Yeah, that was a concept created by Bob Layton. He wrote the book for five issues in an annual, and then he left um, under mysterious circumstances, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And Louise Simonson came on board and immediately went to work disbanding that concept. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so eventually that cover was... Uh, repelled, and they just became another superhero team book. Um, Madeline Pryor, uh, wife of Scott Summers, and baby Nathan Christopher Summers, they were attacked by Mr. Sinister and the Marauders. Uh, Nathan is kidnapped, and Madeline is left for dead and hospitalized under the name Jane Doe. Madeline eventually wakes up, contemplates suicide, and is saved by Scott's brother Alex, a.k.a. Havoc, of the X-Men. Madeline serves as a technical support uh, liaison for the X-Men for a while. I am so shocked that she hangs around. She does. Um, Well, well, you know, Jean Grey and Scott get back together, and when Madeline learns uh, of this, she loses her mind, and it is invaded by demons, and she becomes the Goblin Queen. (laughs) Oh, God. Madeline learns that she is a clone of Jean Grey, created by the diabolical Mr. Sinister. Whoa, whoa, what? They only looked exactly the same. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Sinister uh, was using her for his own nefarious super mutant breeding purposes. Uh, The Goblin Queen unleashes all manner of demons on the world, and uh, she eventually goes and battles Jean Grey face to face. The Goblin Queen tries to kill herself because of shame. The Phoenix Force shows up. Jean survives in the struggle and ends up absorbing the minds and memories of both Madeline Pryor and the Phoenix Force. Oh, my goodness. This poor woman is on the edge. She is like mutant interrupted. And for the rest of X Factor, or at least for the rest of Scott and Jean's tenure on X Factor, they uh, attempt to raise baby Nathan until Apocalypse shows up, infects the child with a techno-organic virus, and Scott and Jean are forced to send the child 2,000 years into the future where the medicine will be able to save his uh, deteriorating body. Well, I really could have used all of this information before I started this book. And what happens at the very beginning of the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix is that Gene and Scott, they've gotten married in X-Men number uh, 30, I want to say, and they're uh, honeymooning in uh, St. Bart's. Yeah. You know, getting on their, their bikini action going. And then suddenly their minds are transported 2,000 years to the future where baby Nathan resides. They've been pulled out of their bodies and their minds have been planted into the bodies of two normal humans by Rachel Summers. So who is Rachel Summers? Rachel Summers is the daughter of Scott and Jean from another timeline, a darker timeline. And she's the one who originally suggested that Nathan, baby Nathan, come to the future so she can cure him of the techno-organic virus. Okay, and uh, how's that going? 
well, not not, not so great. Not we so fi- great. We find that out in this. So, book. in the first issue of the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, we see that this world is um, ruled by Apocalypse, right? The villain that we met in the last episode in X Factor issue number six. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has become this uh, deity, this god king, who takes his philosophy of you know, the, the Darwinian method of that's only the strong will survive and has applied that to every being on the planet. So right. only the most powerful mutants uh, are, are considered um, not to be gene trash and weaker mutants, you know, marauders and, 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 and you know, people who just have three faces <laughs> instead of laser beams that come out of their eyes. Uh, they're below them. And then the humans are the real scum of the earth. They're the true gene trash. So society has been stratified into this caste system. And um, Scott and Gene are parading as regular humans by the name of Red and Slim Dayspring. L-Y-M. Slim. Slim. And Red is R-E-D-D. Yeah. Future names. And they are posing as Nathan's adoptive parents. And they're stuck in this timeline from the time that Nathan is an infant, a very young baby, through, why did I just define infant? I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm filling time. That's what I'm doing. So the time he's an infant to when he's 12 years old. And in that time, they hook up with some rebel low-level mutants, and they start trying to infiltrate Apocalypse's different bases where they find he's doing some kind of gene experimentation. Well, we learned that Rachel Summers mm-hmm. in the future, before she pulled Scott and Gene uh, to her timeline, cloned Nathan yes. Summers oh, yeah. uh, into another child as a decoy mm-hmm. named Strife. And Strife is being raised by Apocalypse yeah, because Apocalypse wants to put his consciousness into this baby because Apparently, he orchestrated Mr. Sinister to clone Madeline Pryor way back when so that Madeline Pryor and Scott would mate and create the ultimate mutant, which he believes is Nathan Summers, who he believes is Strife, but is actually a clone of Nathan Summers. Does that make sense? No. (laughs) Now, I'm really confused because when we jump to the end of the book, um, Apocalypse is trying to enter strife the boy strife that he thinks is nathan which is done via a kiss which is just like a weird <laughs> a weird page to kind of read through i don't know like a vaguely. soul kiss it's a it's it, it, you only need one panel to explain the transference of souls i think a kiss works i like how just uh Even transferring a- souls requires a little foreplay first you can't just go right in there you gotta, a- gotta give give a little kiss first yeah to a 12 year old clone boy, boy. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then he tries to enter him, and then he goes, whoa, whoa, what? This is a clone. So even though he has the ability to, like, the powers necessary for me to enter him, he's not, like, a real life form, but he's already half, like, even if they had actually Nathan, he's he's already half clone genes, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know how it works. Well, Apocalypse doesn't like the fact that Strife is a clone and he rejects him. And then, yeah. you know, the, the book basically ends. <laughs> yep, that's how it goes. I love the idea of 
while these 12 years are happening um, in the life of Red and Slim, uh, the bodies of Scott and Jean are like face down in St. Bart's Ocean. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I would love like the alternate timeline of, you know, their bodies washing up on the beach and like somebody collecting their bodies, maybe somebody nefarious, maybe some villain of the X-Men. And then Hank McCoy goes crazy trying to figure out what happened to Scott and Jean with science. But Lisa, it's time travel. So the moment these 12 years are up, uh, Rachel Summers zaps them back into their bodies the second they fell into the ocean. So right. they don't drown. Don't worry. Okay. That's how it works. Yep. Oh, comics. The other thing we should probably mention is that when uh, this story is taking place, in the first issue, Rachel Summers goes into an immediate coma. Yeah. But while she's in that coma, she's communicating to Nathan Summers uh, telepathically, although poor he's Nathan. not aware of it. Everybody is just entering that poor kid's brain <laughs> with no permission. Like his mom is in his head all the flipping time. And then uh, Rachel's in there every once in a while. Strife, his kind of brother. Yeah, they eventually there. confront each other and uh, uh, they have a big time freak out. Yeah. I don't know, like... It's a silly, silly series that is trying to reconcile with so much bizarre soap opera melodrama that occurred over the course of 60-some-odd issues of X Factor. Uh, and, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, I think that Scott Lobdell does a pretty good job making sense of it all. And, you know, the, the other fact that they have to deal with is that Nathan Summers grows up to be Cable, leader mm -hmm. of the X-Force, and one of the most popular comic book characters of the 1990s. Um, and, and, you know, because of that fact, there was a lot of heat around this comic. And Cable elevated the popularity of Scott and Gene, too. Well, that's that's nice of him. Yeah, so Give I... Give your mom and dad a, a leg up. Yeah. Even with all of that melodrama, this is the first arc that we've read where Scott and Jean are really getting along. Yeah, well, it's their honeymoon, Lisa. The, their 12-year honeymoon <laughs> in the future. It sounds lovely, where it's mostly desert and dust. It's basically Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, because all apocalypses are the same. They're very dry, very dry. Um, but I have a theory, based on the love languages, why this is the first arc where we really see Scott and Jean loving each other, being considerate of each other, and really getting along. And most importantly, uh, communicating. Their psychic rapport is open. It's restored. But They're it's not called a psychic rapport anymore. It's now called a psionic bond. Yeah, well, they've graduated to the point where they're comfortable with each other, and that's when it becomes a bond and yeah. not just a rapport. Bond upgrade. Absolutely. Though this one seems less about, like, feeling each other's emotions and it's more more just like an inter-skull PA system where they can just kind of, they don't have to carry walkie-talkies so they can just talk back and well, forth privately. What I love is at this point with these characters, you have word balloons, dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. You have thought balloons, interior thought, and then you have psychic bond balloons. Yeah, which are like round, but then they have like these like four little like point thingies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like an electric effect, yeah, right? Yeah, and the comic still has captions. So there's so much space being taken up by words. Yeah, I'm a fan of words. I like wordy comics. I don't it's know, just I always I feel like, we, we've talked about this before, but I wish sometimes writers would let the artists 
tell the story. Right. Uh, you don't need to fill up so much space with word balloons, thought balloons, and psychic rapport balloons. Yeah, that's true. So, so have we entered the session? Can we start talking about their relationship? Yes, of course. Okay. So we didn't do our review of the five love languages. If you guys don't know what Gary Chapman's five love languages are, you can go back to episode one and two. But essentially, the five love languages um, created by Gary Chapman are acts of service, quality time, uh, physical touch, gifts, and words of affirmation. Right. And Gary Chapman's a scientist, so this is all mathematically sound. Gary Chapman claims to be an anthropologist, but he seems to only study white heteronormative couples. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, that applies to Scott and Jean, I guess. Yes, yes. So anyway, um, so the reason why I think this is the first timeline where we see Scott and Jean in a functioning relationship is that for them, being stranded in a crisis is where their love languages really mesh to create peak relationship time. So, um, for example, we've seen in um, our previous episodes in um, the Dark Phoenix Saga, in X Factor, that Jean's love languages are quality time, and physical touch. So, um, and we're still comfortable with those love languages being applied to these to, to these characters. Yeah, I I think that these writers have done a really good job of even in all of these really disparate circumstances keeping the es essence of the characters consistent. You know what I think that is? What I think that's uh, an infatuation for Chris Claremont. Really, everybody wants to continue what he started with those books including the Dark Phoenix Saga. And I feel like he redefined what Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created. And every writer since then, up until 1994, when the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix is happening, uh, adheres to the personalities of Chris Claremont's characters. I, I, I love that because even though there's all of these different writers and all of these different ideas, you can tell that they have a love for who these characters are and they don't want to mess it with that too much, I guess. Although I like when other writers challenge those tried and true concepts and that's not going to happen in this book, but in our final episode on Scott and Jean, we might encounter that. Yeah, Brad has been lording over me the next arc because he's read it already. I, I don't want to confuse my brain having different arcs in my head <laughs> at the same time. It's so good. But to be continued, we'll jump back to that thought at the end of this episode. Ooh, teaser. You are like a pro podcaster. Mm, I try. Thank you for those words of affirmation. <laughs> so having their psionic bond restored, that means that there's plenty of quality time for Scott and Jean, because they're literally in each other's heads discussing stuff all of the time, and we don't have Warren bursting in going like, hey guys, what's up? I'm here to distract you from each other so I can infiltrate your relationship, and then, you know, Jean Grey can be my girlfriend. Yeah, I think Scott and Jean work best 
when there's no other X-Men around. Right. And I mean, literally the X-Men, other members of Charles Xavier's dream. They can handle outside forces, uh, even if they are Apocalypse or, uh, you know, Mother Ascani or uh, what's that crazy guy in the wheelchair in this comic? Um, Turin, the uh, terrorist leader. Yeah, that's right. There's no jealousy to be found with these characters, but whenever there's a Warren or an Emma Frost, things get tricky. They get dicey. Yeah. Um, so also they have plenty of time to be physically intimate, um, they're, which to the disgust of their eight-year-old son. He's <laughs> sick of seeing his foster parents make out all the time. Um, and then with Scott's love language, his is acts of service, and so when they're in a crisis, he is always being useful. He's part of the team of Scott and Jean. Uh, but what's interesting about that in this book is he does go off and abandon yeah. Red and Nathan on several occasions for the sake of the mission. And that is certainly in keeping with what he's done in the past. He loves hiding his feelings in combat. It's interesting to see how their different love languages influence how they parent and how they how they parent Nate in particular. Um, but going back to him being acts of service, um, if we think back to X Factor, the only time he was happy in that entire book was that first issue. It was that first issue. Yeah, rescuing when, Rusty. Exactly when the team was trapped underneath a bunch of rubble, and he was the only person who could help. Yeah. He's the only person who could get them out. Thank God for my optic blast, guys. And um, with this particular book, um, we see him being so contented at the end, beginning of the book that he makes, I think, his first joke. What's the joke? I don't even remember. Um, so he's trying to sneak his progeny out of the cloisters, and he's escaping Apocalypse's goon who's named Ch Chaver. I'm glad you pronounced that. Why do future names have to have an accent mark? I have no idea. It's not an accent mark. It's an apostrophe. Same diff, Lisa. <laughs> but anyway, so after he's sneaking them out, he says, I'd say we'd had a fairly productive honeymoon. Ugh, but um, Not funny. Total dad joke, though. <laughs> I wish he had saved that. The This is what proves he's a dad. Great joke. Terrible timing. He should have saved it <laughs> until, like, he's being sucked back into the future. And as he's fading away, he should say, I guess we've had a fairly productive honeymoon. Uh, that would have been the uh, perfect timing. Uh, I've decided that these are going to be my last words. Like, as I'm on my deathbed and you're staring deeply into my eyes, I'm just going to whisper, I'd say we've had a fairly productive honeymoon. So you're, death. you're, 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 you're proposing that you're jumping back 2,000 years in time? No, no, no. I'm saying that that's going to be the ultimate callback, me on my deathbed calling back Cyclops and Phoenix past and future. No. <laughs> Find better words, Lisa. No. Find better words of affirmation on your deathbed for me. I will not. Although I'll probably die before you. We all know that. Yeah. So many burgers. <laughs> no. We've agreed that I'm going first. I agreed to nothing, Lisa. I'm going to see you dying, and then I'm just going to do myself in. Just right the second before, I'm going to beat you to the finish line. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> so let's, let's dig into Scott and Jean as parents, because I think that this is really where the meat of this book is. And 
where we see the most conflict in their relationship. As the story progresses from that first issue, each and and each issue is a time jump, right? Mm-hmm. So like the beginning of the book, uh, Nathan is an infant, which we've defined as a young baby, yeah, right, Lisa? Yeah, a very young baby. <laughs> and then the second issue, he's what, like uh, three years old, four years old? I would say that there's not that much of a time jump between two, three, and four, because by the time it, in two, he seems, he's talking, he's walking, and he looks essentially the same as he does in three and four. So I would say... He's like eight and two, maybe the same age in three, and then 12 and four. Yeah, okay. There's definitely a big jump from three to four because when you turn that page, suddenly Scott and Gene are way older. Yeah. They're very grizzled. Yeah, but And I love that because, you know, I love grizzled men. Yeah, you do. You like an old man. But but you, you get the sense that they're in this routine of having to be moved from place to place, having to, you know, like Jean using her powers to disguise Nate and cover up all his mechanical parts. And she's trying to train him to use his powers. And he's a total brat and doesn't want to do any work himself if mommy can do it. Well, it's hard for him. You know, we see that one training session and he's literally breaking into a sweat trying to morph his own body. Mm-hmm. So so what are Nathan's powers exactly? What are Cable's powers? Well, he takes after his mom. Uh, he's a telekinetic mm-hmm. and he's a mind reader. Uh, his super strength comes from the cybernetic elements of his body, but his mutant powers are basically the same as Madeline Pryor, which are the same as Jean Grey. Oh, okay. Okay, I get that. But we really don't see, at this point, like... He's kind of prepubescent, so maybe his his uh, powers are still like blossoming or whatever. Because all we really see him do power wise is morph his skin and complain a lot. Well, he, is he morphing his skin, or is he um, putting a mental shield? Uh, over his body? Like, is he changing the minds of others to make them think that they see an organic arm when in fact he has a cybernetic arm? I will uh, say that it is unclear. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think I think it's a, a, a mental uh, projection. Okay, yeah. Well, going back to when uh, the boy Nathan is an infant slash young baby um, and they're escaping the cloisters we get the sense that Scott has a pretty archaic view of marriage, a very mm. traditional view of marriage, because they have that little conversation. Jean makes a crack about um, the vows, their marriage vows having the word obey in them. Right, right. And, and they took it out. Yeah, and and Scott said, well, you had us take obey out Right. Of the vows. Right. <laughs> and he seems kind of still a little bit hurt by that. Because he's like, I don't understand my my wife wouldn't want to be obligated through pact to obey me. <laughs> and and But we see that throughout this book, that traditional view of marriage. And he's pretty content to let Jean do the lion's share of parenting. So Unless, he- of course, the child is in a coma or on a, his deathbed and then... He's 100% present, but that's like the only way he'll pay attention to his own children. 
Yeah, and well, so let's talk about that real quick. I agree. He he's all too happy to leave the house mm-hmm. to Jean and go off with Turin and battle Apocalypse's minions and what have you. Uh, but that sets him up for this emotional wallop of a climax when in the fourth issue he confronts his comatose daughter from another timeline and admits to her, because now he understands that Rachel has been communicating with Nathan telepathically from the coma, (laughs) admits to her that he did not give all his love to this child, to Rachel, because it was this weird, freaky thing, and he couldn't deal with the love that she was sending his way. And because they've set Scott up as this traditional 50s absentee father, uh, it is more impactful when he finally says to her, I'm sorry that I never gave you my love. That drives me crazy, though, because the only way he'll interact with his children is when he's operating with regret. And we see Mm. it again, we see it in his relationship with Nathan when um, Gene comes to him and goes like, your son is really struggling emotionally he all of a sudden makes it all about him. Like, I have been a terrible father and I need to take care of this immediately. And Gene is just like, no, cool down. I'm just saying, I want to make you aware of it. Be present for your kid. And we literally do not see that again, that desire to be with his child until... Uh, the very end the when very they're end. going back to their when normal. Nathan yeah. literally looks like a face stretched over a pile of like connects. Yeah, he looks like he looks like silly putty stretched over. Yeah, connects. Let's go with yeah. connects. <laughs> Talking about 90s a little 90s toy for you. But well, that's what I'm saying though. I'm not I'm not saying that this that 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 I, I like Scott because of this, but I feel like when you get to those moments, when you get to him uh, apologizing to comatose Rachel when you get to him facing his son being stretched out over a pile of connects. I do feel something for Scott Summers. But I feel really sorry for Jean because Jean has been there for her children. She is the one who has been educating their son giving their son pep talks but because Scott has been withholding love from his progeny. Now, all of the sudden, too little, Scott, too late. Scott's pep talk is going to mean so much more <laughs> to Nathan yeah. and to Cable. Total dad move. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I but, hate it because. But I understand yeah. it. That's what I'm saying. Is like it, 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 it's it all works for the melodrama. It works for this story. Although I think certainly by the end, we're supposed to feel like Cyclops has gone through this journey and he's going to return back to his present day, a changed man. Uh, Spoiler alert. No. (laughs) He's pretty consistent. He's pretty consistently a terrible person. But from this point forward, when he does return to the present and interact with Cable in, you know, the Age of Apocalypse storyline or something like that, Mm -hmm. he does show more affection to adult Nathan, who is in fact actually older than Scott Summers at that point in time. That's nuts. Yeah, I love comics. Here's an interesting choice that I think that they must have made together because we don't see exactly when they decided to do this, 
But I think it's weird for them to make the choice to tell Nathan that they are his adoptive parents versus going where your actual yeah, why, parents. Why, why do they hide their crazy sci-fi parentage from this child? I have no idea because now, like now he's going to have this tremendous abandonment complex because he's growing up with the this idea that his birth parents abandoned him and then his adoptive parents are being sucked back into the future and so like I think about um Scott being a child of adoption and all of the complicated emotions that's created for him well now his son has that compounded because and his daughter from another timeline yeah so (laughs) and the clone decoy baby named Strife I mean that poor kid well, I mean, okay, so what's so great about comics is that we do return to this timeline in the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which is contained in that uh, past and future trade paperback that Marvel has just put out. Uh, they still don't tell uh, Nate Dayspring that, yo, we're your actual parents, or at least Scott is, and Jean Grey's the original that your mom was cloned from. Uh, but however, Cable as he reveals to Scott and Jean in the age of apocalypse storyline, which takes place a few years, actually, I think it's 95, a year after this miniseries comes out. Um, I could be wrong on that listeners. Let me know. Uh, but in the age of apocalypse Legion quest buildup, uh, cable says, guys, I knew you were red and slim. Oh, wow. The whole time. Okay. Cable, little young Nathan, he was perceptive and he is uh, a mind reader. So, which, you know, I don't I don't understand how this all works. You have one mind reader, mom battling one mind reader son. But at some point, Cable picks up that Red and Slim are his parents. So he doesn't have the abandonment issues. But Strife, little boy Strife, decoy baby, he certainly does. He grows up to be a, a huge threat to the X-Men. And there's a massive storyline called the Executioner's Song in which Strife goes back in time, he looks just like Cable, he's dressed like Cable, and he shoots Professor X (gasps) with the techno-organic virus, tries to kill the dream. But, you know, X-Men win. Okay, good, phew. (laughs) So I think we've covered everything within the book about, that has to do with Scott and Jean's relationship. Mm -hmm. We've skipped some smaller plot pointy things like how biblical this whole thing comes across. You get some serious savior vibes. Well, there's that one panel early on in the book after the first time jump, uh, Gene Haw, the illustrator, uh, depicts Scott, uh, leading a donkey and on the donkey is uh, mother Jean gray and baby shrouded, uh, Nathan. Yeah. And she's wearing like the Marion blue head scarf thingy. I mean, it's way on the nose, but I love it. Yeah, I do. I really do. Like it's super silly. Um, you know, Scott and Jean are the Joseph and Mary of the uncanny X-Men. They really are, especially in the nineties because of their Christ baby cable. Right. Right. Which by the way, if we're going to, 
talk about Executioner Song and Age of Apocalypse and all these nutty things that happen, jump even further into the future, into the early aughts, and there's the Messiah Complex storyline <laughs> in which after the House of M events occurred, which is when Scarlet Witch erases the majority population of all mutants on Earth, the first baby born after that apocalyptic event is Hope, who becomes Hope Summers, the adopted daughter of Cable, who then takes that girl, transplants her back 2,000 years in the future, and raises her like Red and Slim did for this this new baby. I guess it makes sense, the idea that <laughs> Jean Grey, born without original sin, has these amazing powers um, and is always on the right side of an issue. And then Scott as Joseph being skeptical, worrying about appearances, but then ultimately taking on the responsibility of caring for this perfect being. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think I think that works. Yeah. Who was Jesus's um, clone decoy? Jesus's clone decoy was uh, Satan. I don't know. No, no. There uh, was Damien? No... I guess the Antichrist, right? Strife is the Antichrist? Yeah, there's no Antichrist in the Bible that I know of. Oh, really? I've... Yeah, I think maybe in Revelations, but who reads that? I was raised Catholic. <laughs> and When you're raised Catholic, all of the actual Bible reading is left to the experts, and they just tell us how to, how to live. I was raised where all my religion was based on the omen. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so what Gregory Peck did, I followed. Okay, that sounds like a solid upbringing. We both turned out great. Yeah. So, so no fault there. So I think it's time to go into what from this book can we apply to our relationship to strengthen our bond? Oh, boy. You know, last episode, uh, I came away from X Factor seeing a lot of my brooding self in Scott Summers, the yeah. way that he stuffs his anger and frustration. And when he's upset, he goes quiet. That is very much a Brad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of escaping into work also sort of makes sense for me. Okay. Um, you know, when I don't want to address the problems in our relationship, Lisa, <laughs> with our uh, non-existent clone baby, um, I, I will lock myself up. That's not true. No, I got nothing. Thankfully, I don't relate to this Scott Summers. Well, there's a lot going on in this book that just doesn't apply to us. Like, Thank we, God. The only way <laughs> we would become parents, we are child-free, yeah. happily child-free. The only way that we would become parents is if a child from another timeline was suddenly dropped upon us and then maybe we, we could apply this to us. But... To me, they're just in a circumstance that we we would never find ourselves in, I don't think. I would hope not. <laughs> but it did get me thinking about what, like, their ideal relationship circumstance is to be stranded together in a crisis. That is when their love languages thrive and they can really exchange um, their love languages to fill their tanks. So what do you think the ideal situation for our marriage is? When are we at peak love language communication? Uh, on this episode? Like when we're podcasting? I think, yeah, I think that's true. I think when we're doing something creative together, um, sharing a project where we're both getting those affirmative exchanges 
um, we're both uh, spending quality time together. I mean, we are big time nerds. Yeah. And we love a project. Yeah, we do. And we seek them out. Whether it's this podcast, our other podcast, our writing, your painting. Uh, and I think I am happiest when the two of us are either collaborating on something like this uh, podcast or you're working on your article and I'm working on my article. And we're, we're reading each other paragraphs and giving each other feedback. I think that that's definitely the truth. So we know that with Scott and Jean, they're... The situation in which their relationship struggles is when they're with the X-Men and their attention is divided. Yes. Um, so what what do you think is the situation where our relationship struggles the most? <laughs> well, I think uh, sometimes when we go to a film club at the Alamo yeah. Winchester or the Alamo Ashburn, um, and we are split amongst our X-Men, our fellow <laughs> film club members. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I'll get frustrated with something. Um, you're, you, you know, you go off and you do your own thing within right. that group. And, and I have, like, I, I deal with a lot of social anxiety. So when we're in a group, I don't, like... I want to stay side by side where you're a little, a little bit more of a mingler and you want to make sure you are with everybody. Yeah. And I feed off the energy of others. Yeah. 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 So, so I tend to be a little bit of a yeah. suck in you, that, well, that situation. I don't I mean, I don't think you're a suck in that situation, but I do think you hit a wall yeah. where you're like, I am done talking about movies. Let's I go. I can't people anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that our relationship struggles when, um, one of us is having a creative moment and then the other person is tired. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, Lisa. Like last night when I, yeah. when I rolled home at eight 30 after yeah. a long day of work and you're like, I'm at the computer. It. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's start recording. And I'm like, I'm just not in that place right now. And then I go all Scott Summers broody, get quiet on the couch and just start watching TV in silence. Yep. But then, but then I snuggled up next to you, and we really enjoyed watching Jingle Bell Rocks. We did. So, we did. So yeah, I like. I I wonder when we move on to another couple after Scott and Jean, will we see so much of ourselves in them the way I do in Scott and Jean? I I don't know. I hope so. I think that um, anywhere we see two people in love, we can't help but apply ourselves and and think about because. Feeling true love is something that is extraordinarily special. And even no matter who you are, you feel like, well, our love is the perfect love. And everybody else is just dealing with like a substandard yeah, subset of love. Yeah, but I don't love. think that Scott and Jean's is a perfect love. I may have when I was 13 years old, but in revisiting them over the course of Dark Phoenix Saga, X Factor, and now The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix... Um, I'm, uh, uh, I'm like, oh boy, I, you know, I understand why somebody like Grant Morrison would come on board to, with these characters and say, I'm going to shatter this relationship. Yeah. But like in their dysfunction, we can look at their relationship and go like, well, if they handled it, like we handle it this way, or if they had, you know, done this other thing, then they could have a perfect love like we have. Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, 
this uh, mini series is certainly the um, best example of them working as a couple. And I was very thankful to be reminded why I like this team in the first place. Although in talking to you about uh, Scott Summers' 50s absentee father mentality, I'm like, well, maybe maybe I'm also the jerk for not even noticing that in the first place, Lisa. We see a lot of Gene in this storyline managing Scott's emotions and going like, okay, don't blow this out of proportion, but you need to be a better father. Um, Managing emotions, you love to do that too. And I need it. (laughs) And I need it too. We both have the ability to go into a super negative spiral where we're we're feeling down on ourselves and and criticize ourselves. (laughs) And it's hard like when you see your other special person who is your favorite person in the world talking about talking badly about our favorite person in the world. Like it's it's a it's a tough situation. And um, and it's hard to relate in that moment because, you know, when I go or when you go like, ugh, I'm writing terribly today and all I'm producing is garbage. And I look at you and I go like, I think that you're an amazing writer and it's impossible for you to make complete garbage. You know, it's hard to pull the other person out of that swamp swamp. But I think um, the fact that Scott and Jean in this situation are really relying entirely on each other because they're sharing this tremendous secret of their actual identity, that that bolsters their relationship. The fact that they're bonded together in this way, that they're not bonded to anybody else, not even their own son. And what's nuts is they live 12 years in the future together (laughs) and then are zapped back to the present uh, and then go about being their normal selves. I, I feel like I, I ha- Brad, you've continued reading this this same storyline. I have not because I, my brain is easily confused sure. when I start adding more information. I've been jumping all over the place yeah, with X-Men have. comics this week. Yeah, I've fallen hard for these Marvel mutants. I love that. Yeah, so do I. That's why I, I wanted to do this podcast because I knew it was going to jumpstart some of that uh, nostalgia uh, that, that I crave. But I'm wondering, like, now that they're away from their son and away from this person they've been with for 12 years. But they're not going to be. They're going to go back to their present, and then there will be old man Cable. Oh. You Do know? you think that that would fill the place of <sighs> their 12-year-old son? In rereading Age of Apocalypse, which was written after this event, uh, the interactions between Scott and Gene with, and Cable are much more warm. That's nice. Now, I like that. that storyline uh, evolves into another disruption in the space-time continuum and all kinds of madness occurs. Uh, But in the moments right before the Age of Apocalypse begins in the Legion Quest issues, um, Scott, Gene, and Cable are tighter than they've ever been. They're uh, really bonded as a family? big time. Oh, that's awesome. They're hugging each other. It's adorable. Ah. And then smash, boom, Age of Apocalypse. Physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation. They're just filling each other's familial love tanks all over the place. So, next week, the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast will return with another entry in the romantic adventures of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. So, Brad, you've been so excited to share 
What is our next arc that we're going to be reading? Well, we've survived the 1990s, and it's time to take another tremendous jump along X-Men continuity. Uh, Yeah, I'm really excited because we're tackling a chunk of Grant Morrison's infamous run in New X-Men. Yay! Uh, To be exact, we're reading issues 127 through 141. That's way more than four issues. Uh, It certainly is. I gotta hit the books. Uh, As Lisa's alluded to, I've already started rereading his run, and I'm... Personally going to try and read the entire thing before we record next. Uh, But if I don't, that's okay, because that's a lot of comics. I'm going to give it the good old college try. Uh, You know, Grant Morrison's one of my favorite writers. Uh, His run on All-Star Superman is my favorite interpretation of that character. His run on Batman is my favorite interpretation of that character. And I might say that his run on New X-Men is my favorite version of these characters as well. Uh, Issues 127 and 141 are collected as part of the New X-Men Ultimate Collection Volume 2. It is the very middle of his series, but that is when things get really fiery between Scott and Gene And just a little bit of uh, warning for fans of this couple, Morrison basically took the job to separate them. Yeah, so we're going to go back to dysfunctional Scott and Gene. Yeah, big time. Which means a lot of fodder for this podcast. Yeah, so so yeah, it's going to be a good episode, guys. Oh, I'm stoked. Okay, so Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, You can find me on most social medias at MouthDork. I'd also like to encourage our listeners to head on over to Film School Rejects. I've been cranking out a lot of the the end-of-the-year content over there. So many great best-of lists. And I have been ranting and raving about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is easily one of my all-time favorite comic book film adaptations. Uh, It's a stunning piece of work uh, as an animated property, but also just a perfect distillation of a staple comic into uh, cinematic form. Lisa, we need to get done with this podcast so we can race out to the theater and watch this film immediately. I think it is so unfair that you've gotten to see this movie and you love it so much and I haven't seen it yet. We got to write that wrong. For sure. Yeah. And so Lisa... Where can we find you and send our words of affirmation to you and your lovely self? Aw, I'm always accepting words of affirmation on Twitter and Instagram at Sidewalk Siren. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. Be sure to give us the gift of five stars on iTunes and do the act of service by writing a really kind review You can include in your review any suggestions for comic book couples you'd like to hear about on this podcast. And make sure you give us five stars. Five stars only, please. It really does help us move up the iTunes charts. It's an algorithm thing. Yeah, so so please do if you can. And subscribe to us on Spotify. Yeah! Yeah, I love just spreading the beautiful seed of our podcast on all of these different platforms. We've heard a lot from you guys on Twitter already, and we really do appreciate it. And uh, we just want to say thank you to all our new listeners. But especially Monty. But especially Monty. (laughs) Man, Monty and I have been going back and forth with the whole Wolverine, Jean Grey, Scott Summers love triangle business, which we really haven't even tackled on this podcast yet. 
Oof, that's a crime. There's just so much conflict in Scott and Jean's relationship. I don't know if it can be covered in four episodes. That's why they got to stay in the future where there's no Wolverine, no Angel, no White Queen. Just I, themselves and, you know, the Fury Road mutants. I miss all of my X-Men friends. I want to go back and spend some time with Hank. We know that Hank's my favorite. Oh, uh, Hank is so great Peace. in new X-Men. You're going to love this version of Hank. Yay! Oh, I'm so glad. So, is it time to wrap up? It's so hard to say goodbye. It is. It is, Lisa. We've, we've done all our plugs. Let's get out of here. Sigh. Okay. All right. So, until next time, guys, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy doo.